Can we talk about the most important pressing matter of American life, which is Kirsten Sinema's comments to Republican audiences about her Democratic colleagues? Did yeah. you see you this? You know, they're just a bunch of old men uh, drinking Jello. Drinking <laughs> Drinking Jello. Jell-O. I don't know if it's drinking Jello. Well, that would she, be even more withering. Not Jello shots. No, yeah, I don't think she means Jello shots. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> the vodka no. in this. <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Jane Mayer and Evan Osnos. Hey, Susan. Hi, Susan. So, big sigh. It's been another week and another dramatic scramble to figure out once again if the law will ever catch up with Donald Trump. Will the Manhattan DA indict him? What about the Georgia Grand Jury? The Department of Justice Special Counsel? As of Friday morning, we just don't know. Remember, the week started with Donald Trump saying he was going to be arrested. Not only arrested, he even knew the time and date it was going to be on Tuesday in New York. Well, here we are, days later. No arrest yet. Donald Trump busy putting out the word he's ready for his perp walk, even speculating that it might be fun. Yes, I'm afraid to say the Trump show, with all of its chaos, all of its misdirection, goes on. The racist Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. The Manhattan District Attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. Let's be very clear here. The case died this very week. It is very obvious. It is very clear. And all they do is they cause anger and problems for our country because our people aren't going to take this stuff. So, Jane, in a lot of ways, this would be truly a historic moment. It's never happened before that a former president of the United States has been indicted. Uh, It appears, and again, asterisk, underscore that, it appears that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg might be on the brink of breaking that historic barrier. But in some ways, it also feels like we've actually been here before, at least with Donald Trump. I mean, think about the way we've been breathlessly waiting all week, shades of the Mueller report, if nothing else, right? Uh, But Donald Trump, he has been investigated since he basically entered adult life in the 1970s, right? Again and again and again. What do you think this moment means for him? I mean, is this is this truly something he's he's going to bluster his way through or is this something that he really fears that he's really in jeopardy from? You know, it's been said that Donald Trump is a one-man crime spree, um, and he has been for years, and he's always been a stress test of the legal system. He pushes the limit, and, and I think you can really suspect that he just doesn't care what's le- the difference between legal and illegal. Um, and so I think it's an incredibly important moment because the question is whether our legal system, our rule of law, which is the crux of our democracy, can catch up with someone who violates all the rules that everybody else has to abide by. It's in part about him and his personality and his ability to turn everything into a reality show. But I really think the more interesting question in a way is whether the system can handle him and and what he's doing to the system and what his backers are doing to the system. So, I mean, it looks small. The particulars are small. The moment is huge. So, Evan, I mean, I have to say, we've seen Trump rally his defenders once again. This is a playbook that he's turned to time and time again, but it works. And Republicans are already out there criticizing an indictment Hmm. that has not yet happened as being politically motivated and that they would argue that rather than 
attacking the rule of law, they're the ones, in effect, defending it. They're the ones saying that you shouldn't have what amounts to victor's justice, that you shouldn't have uh, a local prosecutor imposing a political agenda and watching out reap the whirlwind. I, there was a column in the Wall Street Journal this morning, in fact, saying just that, hey, Democrats, you better beware because we can find crazy local prosecutors too to indict Joe Biden or indict other Democratic politicians. Do you think there is the risk of sort of unleashing the hounds of uh, retributive justice? Well, I, I think we'll we'll talk about whether or not this, in fact, is something that is utterly unprecedented. I'm, I, I'll make the case that I think actually there is history here. But I want to talk about something in the meantime, which is that, look, right now we're in this period that because everybody's waiting and, and, and expecting something, that everybody is already getting a little bit too clever by half. You've got a lot of Republicans, in effect, kind of preparing the electorate by saying, oh, this is a great thing for Donald Trump. This is really going to help him. And there's, you know, column after column that say more or less that, that this is uh, this is going to consolidate the base. I, I'm quite skeptical of that theory because I think there are not a lot of Americans out there that are thinking, you know, I was a little I was a little exhausted by Trump. But now that he's been indicted, I am <laughs> finally energized to get back into the game. And I think the other thing that is quite clear is that his frenemies like Ron DeSantis are just delighted by this development. Take, for example, the fact that, you know, DeSantis is doing the, the thing that Republicans are doing now where he is sort of mouthing all of the uh, ritual statements about how this is a quote-unquote Soros-backed prosecutor going after Donald Trump. But then, I mean, there was one quote in particular that caught my attention. Then I noticed that DeSantis did linger on the following quote when he said, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to secure silence over some type of alleged <laughs> affair. I just can't speak to that, which with friends like these, uh, you know, I think so the damage to Donald Trump will be real in the sense that he will be contending with this issue for a while. So, OK, you're out on a limb here saying that actually an indictment shock horror is not actually good for a politician. This is, a, you know, certainly a defensible a, argument. A bold moral claim, but I'll, I'll stand by it. Yeah, I mean, it's moment. kind of like what Senator Smith from Minnesota said. She says, I'm an old-fashioned girl. I think being arrested in the middle of your campaign is not a helpful thing. <laughs> but, but, but you know, but the, so much of the punditocracy is in the other place on this. And I think what's fascinating, if you step back, is Trump has again turned the press and the punditocracy into sort of, you know, film critics of his reality show. And they're busy, you know, is this, is he up, is he down, whatever. But meanwhile, they're playing his game, um, which is, you know, that he's criticizing the justice system and they're all in on it saying, oh, this is the wrong indictment, the wrong time. We shouldn't start with this one. They're buying into the idea that they know better than the criminal justice right, well, system. Good point, because by the way, there's no indictment. So we've all <laughs> right. pre analyzed an event that has yet to occur. That being said, we do have some understanding about what this investigation in New York is about. Evan, what exactly do we expect uh, in terms of charges from the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, and what is the case about? Well, it's it's actually uh, a bit of a tricky case because, in theory, this is going to be a case about uh, how they accounted for campaign contributions and whether, in fact, the hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels constituted an, an illegal contribution. But it rests on this 
quite tricky legal detail, which is can, in fact, a contribution to a federal campaign be subject to uh, criminal charges in state court? All of this matters greatly in terms of whether or not Donald Trump could be charged, whether it's a misdemeanor, whether it's a felony. So, yeah, I think um, there, there is more than a small amount of play here in terms of what the actual result could be. So, Jane, the origins of this are this affair that Donald Trump had with Stormy Daniels, uh, adult film star, actor, uh, Stephanie Clifford, her real name. This happened all the way back in 2006, right? And then there's this 2016 $130,000 hush money payment uh, made by Michael Cohen. He seems to me to be really the key character here. This is Donald Trump's former lawyer, former fixer. He's actually already gone to jail for this crime, already served his time and is now out and seems to be the key witness. You've talked with Michael Cohen. You've you've met him. What, what do you think? I mean, he this is sort of a revenge story, isn't it? This whole case. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's it's a little bit <laughs> kind of more earthy version of the John Dean story. He's an insider who's turning eyewitness on the boss, um, and he was right there in the midst of this. And I and you can imagine why. I mean, I think when the prosecutors first went to talk to him, he was in jail, and the DA's office sent prosecutors up to talk to him, and he was furious because he was the the henchman, the secondary guy in this plot, and he was the one serving the time, but he didn't do the crime, basically. It was his <laughs> boss who came up with this scheme, according to him. And so he was angry, And but eventually he gave them all the details that formed the beginning of this prosecution. But um, he's a fascinating guy to listen to. He's a lawyer. Um, he was a loyalist above loyalists to Trump. And he was so stung when he experienced what so many people around Trump do, which was he was thrown under the bus by the boss. Well, right. Evan, didn't he say that he would actually take a bullet for Donald Trump? And then just a few months later, of course, he broke with him. It is painful to admit that I was motivated by ambition at times. It is even more painful to admit that many times I ignored my conscience and acted loyal to a man when I should not have. Sitting here today, it seems unbelievable that I was so mesmerized by Donald Trump that I was willing to do things for him that I knew were absolutely wrong. What does that tell us? It it is amazing when you look at the full arc of Michael Cohen's passage through American public life that when we were first introduced to him, he was this guy who was threatening mayhem on reporters who were reporting on things about Donald Trump. I mean, he was a really— In the crudest possible uh, uh, way. I mean, he was was (laughs) an intimidating thug. And they know exactly who you are, and they know exactly what you do, and they know exactly the story you plan on writing. So I'm warning you— and he also threatened mayhem to Stormy Daniels if she went if she broke the deal the and came out and violated the hush money agreement. He he threatened that. Remember they worked out a thing where she, every time she mentioned it, she was going to have to pay a million dollars. I mean these are these are these are <laughs> tough rough, negotiators, tough guys. And and what comes through? I the fact is that there's a great description of him from one of the prosecutors who dealt with him, who was uh, uh, looking into his, who actually worked on his case, described him very well, I think, as a feral creature, meaning smart, manipulative, and utterly survivalist. I mean, somebody who will do what it takes to 
to get through. Now, that person also said he was truthful. And I think this is one of the things that it will come down to is, you know, a guy who has been uh, pled guilty for lying and so on. Is he, in fact, going to be somebody that uh, that a court listens to faithfully? And uh, that's the big question. So having interviewed him, I have to say he has the feeling of someone who's come clean. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know whether the, whether the jury will buy it, but he is a true believer in what he's doing now. At the end of the day, it's really all about accountability. That's what I think America wants to see, because Donald has managed to escape accountability his entire life. And the rest of us that have been around him all seem to be the ones who get thrown under the bus. This isn't a for show thing. It's not just to get vengeance or something. He sounds like someone who thinks he's seen the light. Well, well his, his podcast is called Mia Culpa. So, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he's got good advice in terms of his branding. But one thing that I was always struck by with Michael Cohen is, among other things, he's one of the very best Trump whispers and Trump explainers. In yeah. fact, I asked at the very beginning of the Trump presidency when he was still on the inside— I asked a group of the kind of smartest Trump observers, well, who do you turn to for Trump insight? And a number of the very best ones, they said, absolutely, without par, Michael Cohen. He really speaks the language and can interpret Donald Trump. And I'm reminded of that thinking of, remember his famous hours-long hearing uh, before the House after he had been arrested, but before he had gone to jail. He did this incredible public testimony uh, against Donald Trump when Trump was in the White House. It was actually the very same day that Donald Trump was having the Hanoi summit with Kim Jong-un. And Michael Cohen is up there spilling all of his secrets, talking about how he did, quote-unquote, dirty deeds for Trump. But there was this, I think, really interesting Trump insight in that Michael Cohen hearing back in 2018. He said, Donald Trump has avoided, he avoids getting in trouble because he speaks with this sort of indirection. You know, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? Donald Trump speaks the language of, he never writes it down on email. He just, he sort of says, this is what I'd like you to do. Or, you know, what about that guy? We'll, We'll see about him. And I thought that, of course, is one of the reasons why Donald Trump has never, uh, yet, until now, been indicted criminally. I agree that he was a great Trump interpreter, and he was among the people I interviewed, one of the only ones who said, if Trump loses in 2020, yeah. he won't go. Well, he by predicted the way, he said that in beforehand. the testimony. He, he testified he, to Congress today. He yeah. absolutely that was a, that was a promoted yeah, what he, was going to happen, yeah. and, and he, he, he really knows him well. And you're absolutely right about how he understands how Trump leaves no fingerprints, which is why there are all of these prosecutions on all the different levels in this country moving forward, but they're so hard because Trump is so good at not leaving fingerprints um, and and being just slightly ambiguous in how he says things. Um, should we run through them, all these prosecutions? <laughs> well, that's right. Okay, so Evan, walk us through uh, this New York case, what the other potential cases are, and, and what do you think is the hierarchy of them? Well, I mean, the, we've got the chronological hierarchy, and then there's also the the chances of one of them actually landing. So New York is the first case that seems to be coming up. But then there's the Georgia case, which is in some ways, this is the uh, about the question of whether in fact uh, he interfered in the election by, uh, as we all remember, telling 
uh, telling the secretary of state that he needed to find a certain number of votes. That's a classic example of the sort of coded language that, you know, that case may hinge on whether or not, in fact, uh, that constituted him uh, directing or or seeking uh, improper influence. Then there are two cases associated with January 6th and with the documents uh, that were found in Mar-a-Lago. So that is the the lineup of conceivable options. I think um, the sequence matters. I mean, one of the things that you hear people talking about now is that even if the New York case is not the most serious of the allegations, that that, in a sense, gives permission to some of the other prosecutors out there to say, all right, well, now it's no longer a question of whether Donald Trump is impervious. It's now just a question of whether this case on its own uh, has the merits to go forward. So that makes it easier, in effect, to charge him rather than uh, being the first one that has to cross that threshold. What happens if he's on <laughs> if he's facing charges and on trial in more than one place at once? Well, what happens if he has a campaign yeah. event at a competing venue? These are complex logistics. <laughs> <laughs> the political scene will be back in just a moment. We should say, uh, just to be clear, you can run for uh, a president from jail. Eugene V. Debs did this. Now, of course, he wasn't actually expected to win. He didn't win. He was the socialist candidate. Donald Trump uh, right now is the leader of the Republican field and could well be a serious contender to return to office even from jail. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. It does strike me that obviously the, the Justice Department is the 800-pound gorilla here and that it would be by far the most serious crime were uh, the Justice Department, the special counsel right now is, is looking at this. Ultimately, though, it will have to be Attorney General Merrick Garland who will have to make the call. We're told, but who knows, right, that, that this is something they would decide upon by later this spring, early summer, perhaps. I want to ask both of you. How likely do you think it is uh, that Trump would actually face charges related to January 6th? And, you know, is that is that ultimately, in your view, a, a good thing or a bad thing for the country? Uh, this idea of uh, justice as retribution is something that, that Trump and his allies are going to lean very hard on, that this is something that should be adjudicated essentially in the court of public opinion and, and, and ultimately in our elections. Well, I, I can tell you that right now, Donald Trump is not simply framing this as an act of retribution against him, but in some ways it's even more powerful and more ominous that he's framing it as he did uh, to a crowd the other day. He said, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. I am your retribution meaning that his capacity to resist prosecution is somehow an act of valor and endurance on the part of his base. That's a really volatile bit of language, because if that's the way he frames it, that's setting a predicate for a kind of, um, I don't want to say necessarily an armed resistance, but we've got him now very clearly calling on his supporters to stand up and demonstrate their commitment to him. I have to say, in that 
phrase from him, I hear so many biblical echoes of, you know, vengeance is mine. Um, And, you know, it's a tyrannical thing to say, basically, for for an elected politician or even an unelected one at this point. I, uh, you know, I think there, there, something else caught my eye, um, which is there's a prediction from an interview in the New York Times from someone who is a uh, Charles Tiefer, who's a lawyer, who's been very involved in as a uh, counsel in Congress, who looks at what's going on in all of this and predicts that what the Republicans are doing and what Trump's doing is laying the groundwork for an indictment of Attorney General Merrick Garland during the 2024 campaign, putting the Justice Department on trial, basically putting the legal system on trial, but, but specifically putting Garland on trial, I mean, you know, or, or trying to, that they'll turn it back. I mean, and what Trump's trying to do is delegitimize again the legal system in this country. And I think it's potentially, you know, quite dangerous what what he's doing. Well, uh, and he's helped, of course, by his enablers on Capitol Hill. I think that's why you have this new committee uh, run by his close ally, Jim Jordan, the weaponization, right? They're talking about the deep state. Who are they talking about? They're talking about the Justice Department. There's the, been this sort of a sustained attack on institutions. But I think what's new, to Evan's point, is also is adding this almost overtly uh, call to arms. Call to, call to arms. And there's yeah. this there's this quote I want to read that uh, Trump just posted overnight. Uh, he's clearly in sort of deep freakout mode here. Uh, he's already rallied his supporters to you know said that they should you know come out and protest his arrest, which didn't happen. The arrest didn't happen. But overnight he said that not only had no crime been committed, but he warned about the potential death and destruction in such a false charge, could be catastrophic for our country. Who would do such a thing, he said, only a degenerate psychopath that truly hates the USA, truly spelled wrong, of course. But this (laughs) this death and destruction, it echoes, Jane, the thing that you were talking about, which was this extraordinary speech at CPAC a few weeks ago. I wrote about it in my column because this idea of a president calling for retribution in that same speech, he, he, he urged his supporters on by saying that this is the final battle. It is our last chance to save the country. That was the kind of almost biblical language that he was using, uh, warning people that there was no other chance, that essentially they had to stand and fight now. And we all saw in January 6th, Evan, some people don't take Donald Trump as a joke. They take him at face value. They listen to inflammatory rhetoric like that, and they act upon it. Uh, Do you think that these court cases could actually come along with the prospect of a serious kind of politicized violence in the country? Uh, yeah, I remember I was covering that the events on January 6th and the, the apocalyptic language of the kind that you were just describing is the coin of the realm. It is about, because it gives a lot of people who otherwise feel kind of listless and unattached in American life, it gives them the, the noblest of purposes because it feels as if they are the ones who are defending the realm from some, you know, vague uh, uh, attack. And that's what he's doing. And I, I, wor- I am deeply, deeply worried because, as we know from January 6th, it takes a few hundred people. It doesn't—and I was, you know, I was talking to a strategist the other day, a Democrat, who was saying that they've sort of segmented this out. They've run their numbers, and they believe there is some core, and it's a, it's a not insignificant number of people who are well-armed, 
well, they're devoted to Trump no matter what happens, and that that's the the fear that we need to be contending with. I know. I mean, I've I've actually done interviews with I guess it was a, a, a former Democratic governor from Ohio who said the problem is they've got more guns than we've got. I mean, which was really yeah. a rather startling thing to say. Um, but um, yeah, it 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 certainly seems like Trump will do. Stop at nothing if he can, if he can, to to keep from being um, convicted and um, to get reelected. So, Jane, I'm, I, it, it strikes me that maybe you're a little bit skeptical that his bluster uh, leaking out of Mar-a-Lago that, oh, well, I'd love to get, you know, handcuffed and, and perp walked. What do you think? Do you think that's how he views it, that it's just a, you know, a spectacle and a political benefit for him? Or is he actually terrified of, of being arrested? Well, turning back to Michael Cohen, I had a conversation with him about this, and he said it keeps him up at night. This is this mm. is his terror. Yeah. Um, and I said, do you think he talks to Melania about it? And he laughed and he said, only if he walks up another floor to find her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say for the record that when we visited Mar-a-Lago uh, twice to interview Trump, there were no discernible signs of Melania's presence uh, there or in his immediate orbit. So uh, actually, one case we haven't talked about at all, and I just I want to bring it up because there have been some developments this week, but also because I'm not sure what to think about it, and that's the classified documents case. Talk about January 6th and the Justice Department, but Jack Smith has also been charged with investigating and figuring what to do about this classified documents case. Now, there's a whole kind of spin-off legal fight this week went all the way up to an appeals court, uh, which ordered that one of Trump's attorneys needed to testify in this case because of the crime fraud exception. What that means is that they have found essentially probable evidence that a crime was committed, and that's enough to break the attorney-client privilege. There appears to be taped audio evidence as part of this. Does it mean that we have a situation here where Donald Trump was either lying to his own lawyers or, uh, you know, was on tape or something saying, hey, don't, I don't have any more classified documents? Well, I think the question is whether the lawyers were conspiring with him or whether he was um, uh, lying to them. Um, and that's what they're trying to figure out and why they need to call the liars in, excuse me, why, why they need to call the <laughs> lawyers in to question them. And, Are we and, allowed to talk about Freudian slips anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, I mean, this, this, the, the breaking the, you know, into attorney-client privilege is an incredibly serious thing. It happens very rarely. For the, the Justice Department would have had to make a decision on this at the various top levels. And, and Judge Beryl Howell, who was hearing this, uh, obviously has seen the evidence and is under the impression that it's serious enough that it is worth saying that there's a, a crime fraud exception here. Um, so this, so this is, a, you know, an important moment. I mean, the case, the what you have to think of this case is not so much about um, classified documents anymore. It's an obstruction case. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we're looking at here. And, and, and that the, the federal government asked for these documents back and that um, somebody in the Trump camp misled the federal government, possibly very deliberately, in which case it becomes an obstruction of justice. So, Evan, uh, it seems like everybody has an opinion when it comes to the question of the documents case and January 6th and uh, what, if anything, the Justice Department should do. What What's your view? I come down to the fact that 
you know, as serious as the documents case may be, I think it got kind of muddied by the fact that clearly a lot of other people had documents. Um, including Joe Biden. Including Joe Biden and Mike Pence and, and on and on. So true. Um, that doesn't undermine the obstruction piece of it, which is a huge distinguishing factor. But I think just to direct our attention to the elephant in the room, Donald Trump led an insurrection against the democratic system and sought to undo an election with a violent insurgency. Seems to me like there could be some violation of law in there. And I think that that is, from my perspective, the much larger risk here is that if that does not get addressed, if it doesn't get cauterized in the sort of full cultural and legal sense, then we are creating a new era in which that becomes a permissible tool because you can get away with it. Well, listen, I do think that there is a kind of a, a inchoate rage in the country in many ways, not just among Trump's rage-filled reporters, we, we, supporters. We often talk about that, but amongst those people who've been waiting and waiting and waiting for some kind of accountability. Hundreds of the foot soldiers in Donald Trump's army have gone to jail as a result of January 6th, but so far, not a single person has been charged. And I think it's worth noting in that context, it has already been longer from January 6th until today with, with no charges forthcoming from those who organized and made January 6th happen than the entirety of the Watergate scandal from the break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters in June of 1972 to the um, exit and forced resignation of Richard Nixon in 1974. It is 807 days and counting <laughs> as of today uh, since January 6th. I just think that's that's a remarkable day. And point. we haven't well, asked you directly, Susan. I mean, do you think that this is likely to lead to a, a case? I mean, are you making the argument that you think that that means that they've decided they can't do it, or do you think it's difficult to do it? What's your assessment? Well, look, I, there is there is an argument. I think that a special counsel would not have been appointed uh, had the attorney general not reached at least some threshold of deciding that it was worth potentially pursuing charges, right? So I do think that it's an indication of extreme seriousness, perhaps even intent on the part of the Justice Department to pursue charges in these in this particular case. But your point is is the right point. How can it be in this country that Donald Trump is the first president in our entire history to refuse to concede his election defeat and to leave office? Peacefully, that is a, that's a remarkable thing. January six, uh, a horde of people, not only just storming their own capital, but doing so with the very explicit purpose of obstructing Congress's constitutional role to certify the election. This was a breathtaking moment. As much as we often talk and talk and talk about January six, so that we seem kind of, you know, inured to it, I think. It's still hard for us to absorb what a what a significant moment it was. Arguably, it was a moment when our democracy crossed some kind of a, a really dangerous threshold. We're still in this crisis. the The lights are blinking red on the system, and you know, I don't know. I mean, look around the world. There are a lot of democracies that have been challenged by this, yeah. that have had presidents who've done all sorts of uh, crimes. In some cases, they've prosecuted them. In some cases, they haven't. I, I wonder, I mean, are we are we in a world, you know, like when France and Israel prosecuted former leaders and they went to jail? Or are we in a world where, in fact, they used court cases against them, like Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel today, and 
Berlusconi in Italy. He's, you know, faced lawsuit after lawsuit after criminal investigation. And that's actually fueled their political uh, uh, movements. What do you think? I mean, I think um, one thing is that what we're seeing is that the tools we have to deal with what's essentially a massive crime against democracy here by Donald Trump because he wouldn't concede, the tools are not great. Um, in the United States. What we have are impeachment. So that is the the constitutional method that's been set up for a president, and it hasn't worked here. That's one problem. The other is our Justice Department has come to the conclusion that you can't charge a sitting president with a crime. And so he could get off the hook during the period when he was in the White House. Now that he's out, these these issues, particularly something like Stormy Daniels, seems like ancient history and maybe unfair. So someone else goes to prison for, for something that he was involved in, and he was an unindicted co-conspirator. Again, our system is seems to not be quite capable of dealing with it the way that We've seen other um, modern democracies have managed to do better in some ways across around the world. You know, France and um, Portugal, mm-hmm. and um, there have been a, a number of countries that have. It's not just a. Uh, this is not just a banana republic thing, despite what some of the Republicans have said. Actually, modern democracies have handled corruption at the highest level very well elsewhere in the world. We're struggling with it here. I think it's that's a crucial point, actually, that we don't talk enough about the fact that there is this real record around the world in other advanced democracies of them attending to the commission of a crime by a high-level politician. And you've named some of the key cases, but there's others too. I mean, there's Germany, Spain, Austria. You can go down the list and see that this is in fact a feature, not a bug of democracy, and that you have to be able to hold people to account. I mean, this is gets back to the, one of the early things we talked about today that I think is really vital to, to, to mention, which is that, you know, as we talk about the, are we ready to cross the Rubicon of prosecuting informal president. We have to remember that this is not the first time that we've had a president or a vice president who's done something really bad. I mean, we talked about Nixon, but Spiro Agnew, after all, resigned because he pleaded no contest to a felony tax evasion charge. Look, periodically in two and a half centuries of American politics, you're going to get somebody in a high office who uh, who is going to break the law, and you have to respond to that. If we suddenly announce that it's just too divisive or it's going to fuel you know, more negative politics, that's throwing in the towel. Well, I I hear you. I hear you. But I have to say, I keep thinking as we're talking about this around the world, look at the comeback bid of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, who right now has been on trial for several years and has used the grievances in that to kind of reignite his political movement. He's come back to power as prime minister. The first thing he's doing is a very controversial effort to force through changes in the judicial system that would make it harder to prosecute him. It's 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 an extraordinary moment, and it is not without precedent. Donald Trump is trying to play the BB playbook. In fact, we can end on this note. I just, just received this email just in from Donald Trump. Friend, <laughs> the Soros-funded prosecutor in Manhattan knows he has no case, all caps in red, against me. But instead of dropping the case and admitting I'm innocent, the Soros DA will drag this witch hunt on forever, all caps, to try and find any way he can to take me down. You're getting a preview of just how far the left will go to destroy our campaign and eliminate the one candidate, me, who can crush Biden in 2024, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So— 
Stop. Please yes. make a contribution oh, yes. to Save America. Unbelievable. For 1,500% right. impact. It's Except like, so believable. But, okay. but it's like buying a rotisserie oven online. I mean, it's like it's he's turned this into a profit opportunity, never and to be missed. He's, and he's selling his victimhood, so and to, to you know, which is just in high dudgeon. Can we just do I, I, one quick moment on fact-checking on the Soros situation? Uh, I think it's fair to say, having done a profile of George Soros— that he has put a tremendous amount of money into American and international political issues. Um, and But in the case of Bragg, he has never met Bragg, never had a conversation with Bragg. Um, he put um, he put a million dollars into a group called Color of Change. Color of Change decided to bra- back Bragg and use some of those funds to wage an independent campaign in favor of Bragg's election to become DA in New York. Um, but Color of Change partway through changed its mind about Bragg. Mm. They were going to spend a million dollars, and they only spent a half million. They got some kind of cold feet on this. So, um, you know, there's there's more here than people seem to realize, and it's certainly not a direct kind of funding of Alvin Bragg by George Soros. I noticed that uh, in the past, it was the Soros controlled, the Soros funded. Now he's just shortened it. You know, he's edited down to the Soros DA. And there are, I mean, as, as Susan pointed out earlier, there are definitely certain echoes in this that everybody knows about, which is Soros was born into a Jewish family. Um, and this this sort of idea that he's the kind of a puppet master Jewish globalist who's controlling everything is very much the dog whistle in all of this. Absolutely. Well, so we begin and end, I guess, in the same place, which is Donald Trump trolling us, as it were, once again, uh, you know, raising money off of the fear and anxiety he himself have generated, putting out the idea that he's excited for his perp walk. And Uh, undercutting the rule of law. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, next week, is it going to happen? I've given up trying to predict. <laughs> I, 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 Stay that tuned. I can't do. Stay tuned, Stay everybody. Tuned. Stay tuned. All right. Jane, Evan, I suspect this is not the first or last time that we will be having an entire show devoted to the legal troubles of Donald Trump. Thank you both for this week. This has been fantastic. Another edition of The Political Scene. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>